0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor Nick Bostock and senior reporter Ellie Philpotts for our regular news review looking at the key stories affecting primary care. Coming up, we're talking about a call for emergency funding to support general practice across the UK and what's happening to partner income as a result of rising costs and the lack of additional support from the government. We're also looking at the state of general practice in Northern Ireland and Scotland after some dire warnings from the BNA in each of those countries. And we're discussing the latest workforce and appointment data for general practice and the ARRS in England. Our good news story this week is about a new blood test for cancer that could help diagnose people much earlier. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up. Nick, last week you wrote a story about the BMA writing to Chancellor and former Health and Social Care Secretary Jeremy Hunt, urging him to find extra funding for general practice in order to prevent a wave of possible practice closures. What exactly is happening here?
1: At the UK UKLMC's conference last month, as the local medical committee's conference, GPs voted for the BMA's GP leaders to negotiate an urgent package of support measures for all practices. They pointed out the massive impact that rising expenses for energy bills and staff costs are having on practices financial stability. And this letter that you've mentioned from senior GPs in the BMA to the Chancellor was basically the first step towards trying to secure that package of support that LMC's are calling for. We've been over some of this on the podcast previously, but doctors at that conference talked about the cost of lighting and heating their practices having tripled. They talked about practices having to make tough choices around, for example, not replacing staff who leave and about partners having to reduce their own income to cover rising costs at a time when they and the rest of the GP workforce are working harder than ever and often working extremely long hours. GPs at that conference talk too about hemorrhaging staff because they're struggling to match rates of pay that other local employers can offer. And the BMA letter to the Chancellor goes over these concerns And it warns that many practices are now saying that they've become financially unviable. Unless there's a significant change to their financial position, they could have to close. So apparently talks are happening in Scotland and Wales over the need for increased support for practices. But we know that around 400 practices in England have closed or merged just since the start of the pandemic. And the RCGP has also said earlier this year that one in four GP practices are now at risk of closure. The BMA also said earlier this year after the government announced that it was imposing contract changes for 2023-24, so the current financial year, that the failure to offer significant extra support to help practices cope with the huge increases in costs that we've talked about threatened irreparable damage to general practice. So this message is very much in line with what the BMA has been saying for some time.
0: We've run a survey recently asking partners about their own personal income and how that's been affected by rising costs, um, as you've been talking about. What did our survey find?
1: Two thirds of GP partners who took part in our survey said that they would reduce their own take home pay this year, their drawings from the practice because of financial pressure. At a time when general practice is delivering more appointments than ever, when we know GPs across the country are working long hours, taking responsibility for far more patients than they can really safely manage. The doctors who run practices are having to reduce their income. Partners who responded to the survey used words like precarious and disastrous to describe the current state of practice finances. And they talked about pressures tightening because staff wages are rising faster than practice income and other costs are increasing too. And practices feel they're having to jump through more hoops than ever to get hold of the funding that is available. The survey also found that 8 in 10 of all GPs who took part and 9 in 10 partners felt that the contract imposed on them for this financial year would make the financial situation at their practice worse. And more than half of partners who responded actually said the contract would make their financial situation significantly worse. As I mentioned, that's to do with the contract failing to offer extra funding at a time when cost pressures for practices have spiked. We know that Costs of lighting and heating have increased significantly for practices, and costs of consumables like paper or other equipment have gone up. But staff wages are far and away the biggest factor that drives this pressure on practice costs. And the the minimum wage increased by 9.7% from April this year. And that means practices with staff in reception or admin roles on or around the minimum wage need to find a significant block of extra cash to deliver that. I mentioned just now that practices say they're losing staff to other high street employers who've bumped up wages, so there's competition locally. And at the same time, the government has announced a 5% increase in the Agenda for Change pay deal for this year, plus further one-off top-ups to pay for NHS staff. Most GP practice staff are not covered by Agenda for Change, but practices do come under pressure to match increases elsewhere in the health service to avoid losing staff. And all this has come after practices lost an estimated £40,000 each on average last year because of unfunded pay rises. So it's compounding a problem from last year. And the survey basically reflects this total mismatch between the funding that practices are receiving and the costs that they face – And partners said they're increasing staff pay, cutting their own pay, working harder than ever, and ultimately, they're worried about their practice's survival, as well as the safety of both staff and patients.
0: It is a pretty worrying picture, isn't it? But you've also spoken to accountants about this and their experience of what's going on in practices, kind of back up our survey findings. What sorts of income fall are we talking about here? And what have accountants had to say about how this is actually affecting partners' take home pay effectively?
1: Yeah, so a specialist medical accountant I spoke to estimated that partners' pay has probably dropped 15% in the last year alone in real terms. He said practice profits will likely drop for most practices in 2023-24 because of all the pressures we've talked about. And that means there's less money left for partners to pay themselves. And obviously this comes at a time when inflation is really high. So once you take that into account, the impact of those pay cuts is magnified. In terms of the mismatch between rising costs and income, this accountant Andy Powell estimates that the uplift to practices core funding in 2023-24, which is the final year of the five-year GP contract that starts in 2019, will deliver about 25,000 to 30,000 pounds to an average practice, so an extra 25 to 30,000 pounds. The minimum wage increase and other staff pay pressures are likely to mean a 5 to 10% increase in Praxis' wage bills, he reckons, and that's worth around thirty-five pounds to £70,000. So the core pay uplift won't even meet the lower end of his predicted wage bill increase. I've written a couple of stories this week about the possibility that Praxis could be able to dip into funding from the Investment and Impact Fund this year. So, that's potentially around a a couple of hundred million pounds across England to top up staff pay. But even if all of that money was made available to cover GP practice wages this year, it would probably only cover, along with the global sum rise, about a 6 or 7% wage bill rise for practice. So, still not reaching the level that some are going to need to find to break even. And there are some issues with using that money for staff pay rises. For one thing, there's no guarantee the money will be available next year. And for another, there are likely to be other priorities that PCNs will want to put some of it towards. So the accountant I spoke to said he would always say to practices that they should never try to cover permanent costs out of one-off funding streams like Mm -hmm. this. And he actually said GP practice funding had always been bonkers, but this was effectively taking the problem to a whole new level. The message from the accountants reflects what our survey and what the PMA has said. There's a big gap between costs and funding in general practice and practices are struggling to cope.
0: Ellie, one of the signatories of that BMA letter is Dr. Alan Stout, who as well as being co-chair of the BMA's UK GP Committee, is also chair of the BMA's Northern Ireland GP Committee. General practice in Northern Ireland, we've been writing about this over the years, but general practice in Northern Ireland is in a really dire state as the minute, um, as is the whole NHS in Northern Ireland, in fact. We've not really spoken about this much on the podcast, but you've been speaking to Dr. Stout in recent weeks. What's the situation over there at the minute and what is the BMA particularly concerned about?
2: Yeah, that's right. It really does seem to be particularly bleak across Northern Ireland. And in fact, the situation there only seems to be getting worse. So this time, Dr Stout told me how an entire third of the country's GP practices, so that's 98, have been at serious risk of closure over the past 18 months. And half of them, so that's about 50, still are. And of these, 30 are considered to be in enough immediate danger to be working alongside a crisis team. And that's a group of sessional GPs and practice managers who go into struggling practices to try to support them in some way. On top of this, another 20 practices are also known to the Department of Health just because of how much they're struggling. So it's a really sad picture. And as well as this, Dr Stout reiterated that last year, he and the rest of the BMA Northern Ireland actually warned that 20 practices were at risk of closure. And then 16 of them did go on to return our contracts. So I thought it was quite stark how he called this prediction frighteningly accurate. And I think we've just got to hope that we don't end up in the same or an even worse situation this time next year
0: it's pretty bad. Over the last couple of weeks, we've also written about the state of general practice in Scotland. Unfortunately, that also makes for some pretty grim reading. So the BMA in Scotland has produced a new sustainability dashboard for general practice, which looks at how things have changed over the past decade or so across a range of data. It shows that almost one in 10 practices in Scotland at the moment has formally closed their lists to new patients in the face of what the BMA says are unsustainable workload pressures. There are now 90 fewer practices in Scotland than there were a decade ago, and almost a quarter of a million more patients. The numbers of patients per GP has also skyrocketed over that period. We've reached what the BMA Scotland is calling a sustainability crisis, and this is why an increasing number of practices are being forced to close their lists, because they simply can't absorb any more work. Many of the problems in Scotland and Northern Ireland are the same as those that plague general practices in England. There's a workload and workforce crisis. GPs are leaving in greater numbers and retention is a major issue. In Scotland, in 2017, the Scottish government promised at least 800 more GPs by 2027. But the 2022 workforce survey shows that the full-time equivalent GP workforce has actually fallen by 3% since 2019. Their headcount number is up, but that makes no difference to capacity if the full-time equivalent numbers are actually falling. Another worrying trend in Scotland that the BMAs highlighted is that increasing numbers of practices are handing back their contracts to their health board because partners simply don't want to continue. The number of practices being directly run by health boards has increased significantly over the past decade as well. The BMA said that the government in Scotland has failed to deliver on its promises. You know, it's accused it of withdrawing funding and investment and totally failing on workforce planning. Dr Andrew Buist, who's the chair of the BMA Scottish GP committee, said that GPs are rapidly losing any remaining faith that politicians will address the crisis and that he is desperately worried about the future of general practice in Scotland. He said that unless there's a change of policy from the government, almost no practice in Scotland could consider themselves safe from falling over in this crisis. Dr Buse actually met with the Scottish Health Secretary, Michael Matheson, at the end of May, actually on the same day that this dashboard was published, to set out some of these concerns. But I'm not sure that GPs in Scotland should hold their breath on any immediate changes, though. Dr Buse has been quite open on Twitter about what happened at that meeting. He said that he and Mr Matheson had agreed on most things, You know that general practice was unstable and needs more resources. That the NHS is too focused on hospitals. But ultimately, Mr Matheson says he has no spare funding. The health funding is already committed elsewhere. The NHS in Scotland, like elsewhere in the country, also has huge waiting lists for hospital treatment. And that is seen as a more immediate priority for the government. Which is what Dr. Bue has suggested on Twitter, none of which is obviously good news for general practice. Nick, we know that in England, the number of GP partners is falling at a much faster rate than the overall GP workforce. And we've talked a number of times on the podcast about the possible future of the partnership model. You know, we've talked today about partners handing back their contract. And obviously, a lot of the concerns about becoming a partner or deciding to step back from partnerships relate to the huge workload involved. But money must also come into play. I mean, if you're working, harder than ever before but being paid less, that's just not sustainable as those responses from our survey suggest. So surely falling partner income is going to have a big impact on people's decisions about whether to become a partner or whether they want to carry on, which could lead them to even more partners handing back their contracts.
1: Yeah, sadly, I think that's true. General practice has lost more than 5,000 full-time equivalent GP partners since 2015, so that's nearly a quarter of the total. The survey we were talking about earlier, GP Online survey, found that one in nine partners say their practice is at risk of closure over the next year. Around half of partners said that they knew of a practice in their area that was at risk. The drop-off in numbers of full-time equivalent partners has actually slowed in the past couple of years. General practice has lost about 2% of FTE partners in each of the past two years, compared with 4% plus in the years before that. That's not exactly a sign of rude health. Clearly, the fact that partners are having to reduce their income isn't going to help attract more GPs into the role, as as you mentioned. We've also heard that doctors are being put off partnerships by the political noise around the partnership model at the moment. Um, Both Labour and the Conservatives have questioned whether partnerships should be scrapped. And because buying into a partnership is such a huge financial commitment for an individual GP... Hearing that politicians don't necessarily see it as part of the future of the NHS is precisely the kind of message that would make you pause before you take that step, Well, will go and see your bank manager. I think it's fair to say that lots of GPs would probably still tell you that taking on the responsibility of partnership is hugely rewarding. But certainly at the moment, the rewards are likely more about fulfilment than pay. And the fulfilment part is also being eroded by pressures around funding, staff and safety.
0: Up next, the monthly appointments in general practice data and the GP workforce data have been published over the past couple of weeks. Nick, let's have a look at the appointment data first. What did this latest set of data have to tell us in terms of how many appointments practices are delivering each month?
1: In the first four months of 2023, GP practices delivered 10% more appointments per working day compared with the same period in 2019, so before the COVID pandemic. And basically, practices are delivering around 1.4 million appointments per working day now, compared with 1.25 million per working day in 2019. And that's not including COVID chaps either. So if you add them in, the rise is actually even bigger. It's about 10.5%.
0: Yeah, we know that GP practices are delivering this huge amount of appointments with significantly fewer GPs as well. This once workforce data didn't make for happy reading either, did it? There was another fall in the number of full time equivalent, fully qualified GPs, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the figures come out monthly and because of fluctuations in the workforce through the year, the official advice is to stick to comparisons over a 12 month period generally rather than month to month. And the latest figures show that over the past year, the number of fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs has dropped by just over 500. So that's nearly a 2% fall. Going back to the appointments numbers we talked about just now, that was a comparison between 2019 and 2023. And over that period, England has lost 1,255 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs. So general practices delivering 10% more appointments with 4.4% fewer GPs, although, of course, the total number of appointments reflects appointments delivered by other staff as well as GPs.
0: You also did an interesting analysis looking at the age of the GP workforce recently, and that also made for quite
1: worrying reading. So comparable GP workforce data goes back to September 2015, because that was the baseline for the government's failed promise to deliver 5,000 more GPs. The workforce has shrunk over that time. There are more than 2,000 fewer fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs now than in 2015. And it turns out that general practice is becoming more reliant on older GPs. So across all fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs, just over 21% were aged over 55 in 2015. And that figure has now risen above 23%. So among partners, the change is a bit more stark. In 2015, around a quarter of GP partners were aged 55 plus, and now it's more than 30% who are over that age. So the significance of this is that according to the GP work-life survey, and I mean, there are other examples, but according to the GP work-life survey, and that's a big poll that looks at GP morale and so on, more than three in five GPs aged over 50 plan to quit direct patient care in the next five years. So a workforce increasingly reliant on older doctors is one that is potentially more precarious.
0: It's also worth mentioning here wider workforce figures perhaps. There was much trumpeting from the government a couple of weeks ago that it had met its pledge to recruit 26,000 more staff working in general practice, than were there in 2019 when this latest GP contract was introduced. The inference here and the assumption from many people was that this was the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme or the ARRS and that it had achieved its goal. But that wasn't actually what the government said. And let's be clear that the ARS was not mentioned in the government's press release. So what is actually happening with the ARRS, Nick, and where did the government get this 26000 figure from?
1: We've talked before about the way the government claims that GP numbers are increasing by talking about doctors in general practice so that it can count GP trainees in the total workforce figure it uses when fully qualified GPs are actually falling. And the claim about the target for 26,000 extra staff in primary care being met has some echoes of that, I would say. On the 18th of May, the government said it had delivered its manifesto commitment of 26,000 additional staff in primary care A year early, a year before the March 2024 deadline that it had set, and NHS England said on the same day that more than 29,000 staff had joined the general practice workforce since 2019 through the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, the ARRS, which offers funding for primary care networks to recruit staff in a range of roles to support general practice. But the figures that this claim is based on actually combine primary care network, PCN staff, and GP practice staff. So part of the total are not in fact recruited through the ARRS at all. They're staff that have been recruited separately by GP practices. We don't actually know for sure what proportion of the total were brought in through the ARRS – But there is another set of figures that seems to offer a clue. So some statistics published at the end of April by NHS Digital, which reflect just the PCN workforce and don't include staff hired by practices, show that PCNs have recruited just 17,424 staff in roles that are covered by the ARS, so roles that could be recruited through that scheme. And these figures are based on data from 98.1% of primary care networks. So the true figure could be slightly higher, maybe around 17,800. But that's still well short of the 26,000 target. So has the target been met? Well, the vague wording in the government's manifesto from 2019 means that arguably its target has been met. But I think it's fair to say that it's certainly not clear that the ARRS has delivered the extra 26,000 staff that it promised.
0: Before we finish, we've just got time for our regular good news slot, which this week is about a new blood test for more than 50 forms of cancer, which a study suggests could help speed up diagnosis.
2: Ellie, what's this all about? Yeah, so it's a clinical update this week um, and one that will hopefully benefit a lot of people both around the world and here in the NHS in the UK in the future. So there's been a new study called Simplify and that's been evaluating a blood test on almost 6,000 patients in England and Wales who had been referred by their GP with potential cancer symptoms and it looked at a whole variety of different types of cancers. It's now been found to have correctly diagnosed cancer in two-thirds of cases and in the majority of these could even identify the original site of it. This is obviously a pretty promising development in the ever-evolving field of cancer research. There is still some way to go but as GP and study co-lead Professor Brian D. Nicholson pointed out, diagnosing and treating cancer earlier has the potential to greatly improve patient outcomes.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, actually, because this is a blood test that is also part of a a separate... There's
2: a separate clinical trial that some people
0: may have heard of that's going on at the minute, which is an NHS funded trial. And that is basically looking at how this test could potentially be used to boost early detection of cancer when it's used alongside existing screening programmes. And that trial's recruited around 140,000 volunteers aged between 50 and 77. And the results of that trial are due to be published at some point this year. If that is positive, it's quite likely that that trial could be extended to an even bigger Population and cover up to one million people in 2024 and 2025. So, this is all part of NHS England's push to have cancers diagnosed earlier and hopefully improve outcomes. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick and Ellie. I'm back next week where I'll be speaking to Christiana Malam, who is the Chief Executive of the National Association of Link Workers. We'll be talking about the value of social prescribing and also about how care navigation can help practices meet new contract requirements around access. So do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com.